So this wasn't really meant to be a podcast to begin with. Um, this is my actually going to be my first solo podcast with the Wisdom Factory because of this. But um, I was writing an article on trade today, and I just had a epiphany that I an epiphany that I, I just couldn't ignore that I felt like I had to share because it was something I felt like it was really important, uh, particularly some of the thing with some of the things that are going on right now with Trump's trade war with China, with these other countries, that kind of stuff. You know. There's a lot of controversial things going on with trade policy, and there's a lot of economists and you know people from all different backgrounds, especially economists, who are debating fiercely and struggling to really understand what's going on and what the best course of action is. I mean, obviously, our trade policy of the past has had some failures. You know, that's one of the reasons why there have been challenges with the United States economy, income inequality, lower standard of living, trade deficits. I mean, you name it, all the things that either are or at the very least are often cited as problems because in a trade deficit, that can get kind of controversial as to whether or not it's a problem. You know, but all the things that are problems are often cited as problems. Um, are being blamed on the old status quo of our trade strategy uh, and our, our trade policies towards different countries. And a lot of the reason why Trump got elected and the, a lot of the reason why even the Democratic Party is having to shift their platform while why populist socialists like Bernie Sanders have gotten a platform is because people want something new. But discovering what that something new is has proven a challenge, especially considering some of the reservations that the United States has about trade restrictions. I mean, we've been a free trading country since pretty much the beginning of our existence. We quite literally rebelled against the British because of taxes. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that was a big part of it. Um, Tax on tea, which ironically, the policy that sparked the Boston Tea Party lowered the tax on tea, but because it gave the British East India Company a monopoly, people still had a problem with it. But the point is that protecting free trade in the face of all these challenges that we're dealing with, um, things that make free trade seem like a less competitive model, is stumping a lot of people. And our government is having a hard time deciding what to do about it. Trump is not, but that's part of why he's so controversial. There's a lot of people in Congress who don't like him. But when I was doing my research for this paper, because I was reading uh, a book researching this paper, but I'm writing this paper right now. It's going to be up on the Wisdom Factory blog pretty soon. Why Trump's trade war makes economic sense. Um, and when I was reading this, I, I had an idea and I, th- I think there's a theory in international relations that is normally applied to military security that's actually really useful for evaluating the situation as trade uh, with trade. Um, and that is the security dilemma. Now, before I explain what I mean, I'm going to go back to kind of how I was uh, researching this and where this idea came from. So there's a book I'm reading right now. It's called Balanced Trade by Howard B. Richmond. And uh, I only started on the first chapter. I did not anticipate on reading this book, but I was reading the first chapter uh, for this research paper that I'm writing, or this article. It's not really a research paper. It's this article. Um, And the first chapter is called The Problem with Mercantilism. And what's really interesting is he talks about how free trade can be non-competitive against mercantilist societies. And there's a lot of parallels between historical circumstances and things that are happening right now. So really the main thing I was getting out of this is how trade can be used as a weapon 
right? Because the the thing is, like a lot of people, you know, classical economists, as he argues, or you know, people who support international uh, uni or not international unilateral free trade argue that market cycles inherently are going to correct for any kind of crazy trade imbalances that happen. Um, and he responds to this by talking about some of the ways that mercantilist powers are able to maintain their advantage. Um, and basically what mercantilism is, is a set of national policies that attempt to maximize a country's wealth through trade. And he discusses things, you know, like, you know, reinvesting trade surpluses to, uh, you know, and, and lending money to countries that, um, that you export to, you know, there's all sorts of different things, but there's one thing that I found very interesting when he was talking about tariffs. Um, and that's when he was discussing the history of mercantilism and how tariffs allowed Britain, France, and Prussia to displace Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch Republic as the primary economic powers, and thus the primary geopolitical powers of the European order and subsequently of the world, because we're talking about a time period where Europe was dominant. And the, I'm going to read something um, that he actually cited. This is not him, but this is from a University of Chicago professor named Jacob Wiener, 1948, that um, practically all mercantilists, whatever the period, country, or status of the particular individual, would have subscribed to the following propositions. Wealth is an absolute essential means to power, whether for security or for aggression. Two, power is essential or valuable as a means to the acquisition and retention of wealth. Three, that wealth and power are each proper ultimate ends of national policy. Four, there is a long-run harmony between these ends, although in particular circumstances it may be necessary for a time to make economic sacrifices in the interest of military security or therefore also of long-run prosperity. So hold that thought for a moment because there's this link between power and economic prosperity that's going to be really important when we're drawing an analogy between some theories related to arms control and the, uh, the theories related to trade. So I'm going to go down to another quote um, from, from somebody else. And this is Edwin Way, um, a, another guy. He doesn't say if he's a professor. But he uses the example of the Netherlands. Um, and there's a lot of parallels here between the Netherlands and the United States when it comes to the trade with deficit with China. He says, the Dutch economy was by far the world's wealthiest and most technologically advanced as late as 1700, but subsequently experienced more than a century of economic decline as manifest in mass unemployment, rising inequality, an absolute decline in the median standard of living, and a loss of technological leadership. The proximate cause of this decline was the evisceration of Dutch manufacturing, largely as a result of the systemic mercantilism that swept through much of Western Europe beginning in the 1690s. Dutch elites mainly largely or maintained largely unilaterally free trade policies down to the Republic's final days. And interestingly enough, throughout the, the implementation of these unilaterally free trade policies, Britain, France, and Prussia were engaging in mercantilism, causing a massive redistribution of wealth from the old powers to the new ones, and a diminishing of the economic competitiveness of the old powers, namely due to a decrease in their ability to access their comparative advantages. By the time the 1700s were over, those countries were bankrupt. So what does this have to do with the security dilemma? Well, Going back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, the link between trade and power, when we're talking about preserving free markets, the challenge that countries that value free markets have to deal with is the fact that trade can be weaponized and that mercantilism is precisely that. It's a weaponization of trade using one-way trade barriers and subsidies and all these different kind of things. 
to conduct your trade policy in a way that you benefit yourself at the expense of others. And when you're comparing that to the security dilemma, that sounds a lot like arms stockpiles, for instance. Because when it comes to free trade, you know, the, the world, I think most economists would agree, would be exponentially better off if everybody traded freely and resources were shared and distributed equitably and fairly. And similarly, everybody would agree mostly with the, the premise that if countries did not have conflict with one another, that if, if everybody was at peace, that the world would be much better off. And yet that's not what's going on. And that's where I get to this security dilemma concept. And it was coined by German scholar John H. Harris um, in his 1951 book, Political Realism and Political Idealism. And just a concise definition from Encyclopedia Britannica, the security dilemma in political science is a situation in which actions taken by a state to increase its own security cause reactions from other states, which in turn lead to a decrease rather than an increase in the original state's security. So a perfect example of this is the arms race in the Cold War. There's other examples, but I think this is the famous one. That what happens is that states pursue weapons and a much more hostile foreign policy out of the perception that other states are dangerous to them. But what happens is that this ends up getting interpreted as an aggressive move and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. And that's what can happen with trade and what arguably is happening with trade as countries increase their trade barriers in response to countries who have done so in the past. You know, when you look at all the fastest growing economies in the world, uh, you know, look at the Asian tiger economies, or, you know, you look at China. One of the things they have in common is protectionism, this this uh, uh, strategy that limits the ability of the world to access their markets but accesses the benefits of global trade nonetheless, you know, bringing as much money in as, as you can. So you have an interesting parallel here, you know, because you can kind of put free trade in the same slot as, say, world peace or, or maybe global disarmament. I'm not a big fan of, of nuclear disarmament, but I'll use that as an example because I think it's a good one. It's a good parallel. You can kind of put free trade um, in the place of, of world peace or disarmament, and you can put mercantilism in the place of armament. You know, it provides temporary security. Um, but at, an, at a cost of what is arguably something that actually diminishes world security, human security, as is often called, in the long term. And the problem that you have with this is the logic of fear and the difficulty of trusting the enemies of a country. You know, because like, you know, it, when it comes to arms races, you know, the simple solution might seem to be, okay, well, we're just going to let our guard down. You know, we're not, not going to build any more nuclear weapons. Or, 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 you know, conventional weapons. It could be arms races with conventional weapons. doesn't matter. Build less weapons. You know, not, not be so hostile uh, towards other countries in our foreign policy. Not militarize so much, etc. You get the idea. But the problem with this is that if you do that unilaterally, the enemy might see this as an opportunity to attack you. That you could be, you know, in a, in a, in a situation where now you're just more vulnerable. And... With trade, tariffs have kind of a similar quality, that when you raise your tariffs and when you are able to you know, improve your trade surpluses, engage in all these different kinds of mercantilist trade policies, they're able to improve your economic security and your purchasing power, your growth rate, and that sort of thing. And it's self-perpetuating in a similar way, because what happens is that because mercantilist countries have the advantage – 
Countries that are not mercantilist are going to become less competitive. They're going to go the way of the Dutch. They're going to go the way of the Spanish. They're going to go the way of the Portuguese. And you're going to end up in a world where the default assumption is that mercantilism is the most competitive system. And for every civilization that fails because they pursued unilateral free trade in a world where there's mercantilism, is going to only further bolster the notion that mercantilism is necessary to run in a successful economy. So theoretically, you get trapped between a rock and a hard place. If you if your goal is free trade, because that's the assumption that this podcast is operating off of. You know, that obviously, like some people, if you're an imperialist, like if you're like a big nationalist, economic nationalist, you know, you you might disagree with that. Maybe free trade is is not so important to you. But if the goal is free trade, you get stuck kind of between a rock and a hard place. Because what happens is that if you lower your tariffs unilaterally, you are going to run that risk of having foreign countries take advantage of you. But at the same time, if you raise your tariffs and you, you keep them sky high and you become a mercantilist yourself, that you only contribute to that system and ensure its destruction. And I think that is at the root of the challenge associated with trade for the United States. What do we do? Because what we've been doing in the past is that unilateral free trade. Lower all of our tariffs. Keep the United States government out of trade. And what that's allowed to happen is that countries like China are able to walk in and exploit us. You know, China's been the biggest one, but there's been other ones and that they're not considered as bad just because the scale's been small. I mean, Japan back in the 1980s was a perfect example. You know, countries have been able to just walk in and, and pillage the United States economy. That's why we have these crazy, absurd trade deficits that are unprecedented in human history, much less American history. I mean, I mean, maybe you could go back to one civilization. Like, if you looked at, I don't have any figures in front of me for the Dutch or for the Romans. You know, that maybe there was something. You know, but, but you get the idea. You know, these these trade deficits are absolutely crazy. But I think there's also a valid concern that's been presented by. The opponents of Trump and the opponents of mercantilism um, as a counter strategy to more mercantilism. And that is, you know, a, a, along the similar lines as a security dilemma. That, that is, is kind of like how the people who are against nuclear armaments say this is going to spark more and more and more of an arms race. It's the same issue. You know, if you become mercantilist yourself, then you, you inevitably cause a more mercantilist world to form. So I think it, when it comes to resolving some of our challenges, you know, because like moving on to solutions, how are we going to solve this? Because that's the important thing. How are we going to solve this problem? If we want free markets, if we want free trade, if we want people to be able to benefit from those things, because free trade has lifted more people out of poverty than any economic system in the history of mankind. You know, if we want to continue benefiting from free trade, how are we going to get out of this self-fulfilling prophecy? That's really what the issue is about. How are we going to get out of the self-fulfilling prophecy? How are we going to make it so that mercantilism is no longer self-perpetuating? And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from how we've managed the security dilemma in the past. Because economic warfare is something that because, because of the preeminence that military power has had in the past, particularly with European history, is something that at least as far as anyone alive today can remember is relatively new. You know, at, at least in the full scale form we're seeing. I mean, yeah, economic warfare, you know, sanctions, that kind of stuff. But like this idea that you're you're using mercantilism to destroy an enemy's economy and to build up your own—that's relatively new. You know, and that's why we've been so hard, or so slow to adjust to China. But we're used to that military side of things, 
And when it comes to that, you know, we've taken really effective steps, not, not to resolve completely, but to mitigate the security dilemma, to alleviate some of the problems that have been associated with it. And, and, and you know, you look at arms control, for example, we haven't gotten rid of nuclear weapons. You know, I don't think we ever will. I don't think we should, personally. I don't think we should. But that's, you know, that's a, another podcast. But, you know, but nonetheless, we've limited the number of them. We, we've, we've lowered some of the tensions that were associated with these extreme numbers of nuclear weapons. And how do we do that? Well, we, we didn't do it by just building up our arsenal. It became pretty clear early on in the Cold War that building up our arsenal was only going to make the Soviets build, us, build up more. And, you know, other smaller arms races that took place across the globe came to the same conclusions. And that was kind of a foregone premise. You know, you can't win the arms race, similar to how you can't win a nuclear war. Uh, on the flip side, the United States didn't just give up its nuclear weapons, and we would have been stupid if we did. You know, we might not be alive today if that had happened. Soviets could have said, we can take a risk-free first strike. The key to this was reciprocity. In mitigating the security dilemma, international leaders found that through reciprocal diplomatic agreements that limited arms, that lowered tensions, that averted war, the countries could get out of this self-perpetuating cycle, that they could actually reach a conclusion where they were able to contribute by, by reduction you know, of their own forces, of their own stockpiles, to a world where there was less tensions. But because that reduction depended on similar commitments on part of the opposing party, they didn't run the risk that is associated with unilateral disarmament and that needs to be applied to trade and, and this is one of the reasons why because what the article is about i'm gonna go back to it you know that i i think trump's trade policy with china has been successful and that's what it is because what he's doing is that by putting up these tariffs he's protecting the united states economy in the short term but by leaving negotiations open and by demanding reciprocity, you read the United States national security strategy, reciprocity in our trading relations with other countries. He, he's giving the Chinese and subsequently the United States a way out of this economic security dilemma. And I, I think this can be applied you know, not only to China, really, but to, to any country that we have a, a trade dispute with. And in doing so, you incentivize free trade. Because remember, you know, if free trade is the goal, you know, if you let's say like ideal world, there's no trade barriers. Governments don't interfere with trade in ways that, you know, distort prices and, and that people are allowed to to buy and sell goods across borders as they will, as or as they you know just as, as they please as they want. You know, that would be a pretty good world to live in, and I think that's the world that in a lot of ways we were trying to create, but we had just done so unsuccessfully, and we had done so in a way that really misinterpreted. Uh, and misunderstood the intentions of the Chinese leaders and, you know, perhaps the leaders of some other countries. I'm not going to get into Canada and Mexico. The situation with them is a lot different. But, you know, we, we misinterpreted that. Tariffs are just such a powerful tool. You know, you're, you're able to get these trade surpluses and then, you know, get money to lend to the countries that you're exporting to. You know, that's, that's what this book is, is saying. You know, you're able to deplete the economy of your enemies. It's a weapon 
It is a weapon, and it's much less ambiguous than military weapons because military weapons can be used for for multiple purposes. This is inherently weaponized, inherently warlike. You know, this is this is the economic destruction of the country that you're trading with if you're a mercantilist. But through reciprocal agreements, we we can manage that. So, really, when when you're talking about tariff policy in the United States, where does that leave us? Well, for one, I, I definitely think what you know whether the trade policy because there is a caveat, and that is that we can't read Trump's mind, and that if Trump is planning on being mercantilist, I think that's pro- problematic. I support free markets. A lot of people support free markets. You know, a lot like a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably going to support free markets. You know, just you know by the nature of our audience, we're in the United States. There's a, a lot of libertarian members of this organization, et cetera. A lot of them support free markets. Um, you know, and if we want to maintain that, it, it's it's going to be something where, you know, like we don't want to engage in that unilateral mercantilism. We don't want to fight fire with fire. We don't want to get into this economic arms race with China. But we also can't let our guard down like we've been. So if, if Trump is planning on using this as pressure to deal with China and to try to get them to reform, to trade more freely, I think it's a good strategy. And that if China is not willing to do that, that's still a good strategy because at least we're able to counteract the mercantilism. You know, the way that mercantilism destroys foreign economies is by undermining foreign competition. You know, by taking away their ability to access comparative advantages, uh, building monopolies, that kind of thing. And that any policy that can counteract that not only incentivizes more free trade in the long term, but even in the short term, it helps offset that. It gives you money to help compensate for the negative effects of that. That you know, the, if when you're importing, the the government is able to get some sort of revenue from that, and it can use that for economic stimulus and for buying foreign currency reserves, and you you get the idea. Different things of that nature. So reciprocity, people, that's the key. Reciprocity, and reciprocity is not new, but I I think the security dilemma and arms control. You know, because I'm kind of I'm using the two back and forth because they're inter, they're interrelated. You know, but the, but the security dilemma and arms control give us, I, I think, a good frame of reference for dealing with the problems associated with global trade and the challenges associated with global trade. And that by using it in this way, we we can lead to uh, we can lead the world to both freer and fairer markets, fairer inherently because it's more reciprocal, but freer because they recognize that. Getting rid of trade barriers can help enhance efficiency. China is not going to stop wanting preferential treatment from the United States in trade. You know, there's a huge incentive in that. There's so much money to be made, as we can see with all of the goods and services that have been exported to the United States from China. There's a tremendous amount of profit to be made there. So they have a strong incentive to give us that that same preferential treatment if the, you know if that's what it takes to be able to continue accessing the United States market in such an unrestricted manner and being able to make so much so much money off of trade with the United States if that's what it takes they're likely going to be willing to do it maybe not now because they're controlled by economic nationalists they're controlled by mercantilists you know, Xi Jinping wants to take over the world and that's not an exaggeration. But I think in the long term, the Chinese have the same economic interests as anyone else. And when you consider that their culture is becoming more and more consumerist, and that their tariffs are, are a tax on their consumers, 
you know, that, that, that a lot of people in poverty in China are, are, do, are worse off because goods are more expensive than they have to be. Imported goods from the United States and things that, the United, that China can't make for cheaper. You know, because of that, there's going to be incentives in the long run, and and that they're they're not they might not see them right away, but they're going to realize they're eventually going to have to come to terms with the fact that free trade is better for everyone. Everyone except the Chinese Communist Party, because they're not free traders, and that is why this has caused so much conflict and tension, and why we expect this to last. But I also think that the United States can reasonably expect to win if we stay committed to free trade and reciprocal trade. And Trump's trade war. We can win this trade war because the Communist Party versus the rest of the world. The majority of citizens around the world, the majority of businesses around the world stand to gain a lot from freer and fairer trade. Trade without tariffs, trade without subsidies, without barriers, where there's competition and where consumers have choices. And that if those choices are overseas, that's not a problem. And where countries can access their comparative advantages and specialize in what they do best, become interconnected. That way there's less of an incentive to go to war and we have a more peaceful world. That is who benefits from free trade. I benefit from free trade. You benefit from free trade. If you are listening to this, you, unless you're a Chinese Communist Party member, you, know, you benefit from free trade. Helps everyone. It's a great system. It's not perfect. But there's ways to adjust for that. You know, there, there's there's government programs, there's safety nets, there's, you know, maybe some very limited tariffs and subsidies that could be enacted, like for for military industries and stuff of sensitive nature. But by and large, free trade's a good thing. But the Chinese Communist Party has to fight that. And as long as the old status quo was able to persist, they were able to trick everybody into going along with this narrative and doing sort of a bait and switch. You know, people blaming the problems on free trade when in reality it was lack of free trade that was the problem but i think that america's trade war against china marks a a very positive you know a very good and and, and hopefully effective paradigm shift in the way we view international trade a realization that free trade cannot be achieved unilaterally because i've been using this this term unilateral free trade for argument's sake to just to kind of prove the point but free trade does not exist if it's unilateral free trade means the absence of governments in the economy no government interference not no u.s government of interference the lack of interference is part of any government and to truly have free trade the world needs to decide that we're not going to use tariffs, subsidies, or other trade barriers anymore. Similar to how if we were to live in a peaceful world, the world needs to learn how to trust one another, engage in reciprocal agreements, and that we all together have to have an effective mechanism by which we can become more peaceful in a way that is transparent, accountable, and governed by the principles of rule of law and fairness. By applying this to trade, we can have a better world. And with that, I, I end this podcast. Reciprocal free trade. What we're facing with free trade is a security dilemma. And if we can resolve or at least mitigate it, it'll be better for everyone.